Welcome to the Anime Research Group. With so much anime produced each season, many interesting shows just slip through the cracks and don't get the fair hearing they deserve. I'm Ian. I'm Danny. I'm Freya. And each week we get together to give one show's chance. Watch the first few episodes and discuss what we thought of it. And this week, Orange. Orange ran from July 3rd, 2016 until September 25th, 2016 for a total of 13 episodes. It was made by TMS Entertainment and their subsidiary Telecom Animation Film. TMS Entertainment is a classic animation studio, one of the oldest, founded in 1946, and is responsible for such classics as Lupin III and all of its parts. Uh, more recently, Tower of God from this season. Really? I didn't know that. I think it's arguably the second or third uh, animation studio in Japan. I want to say the second. Yes, I think Toei might have been earlier. Toei Animation Studio. Because to, Toei definitely predates it. Uh, and I think this was formed by people. The anime is based on a manga by Ichigo Tokano, which ran for six volumes from 2012 until 2017. Though it has been announced recently that the series is going to receive an additional seventh volume featuring the so-called true ending. There was an anime film called Orange Future in late 2016 that served as a retelling of the main story and another live-action adaptation of the material in 2015. The anime was directed by Hiroshi Hamasaki and Naomi Nakayama, and on that note, Freya? So I'll go in the hierarchy order for this. Uh, series director is usually the... Um... Head honcho. Yeah, basically. Which is odd because it's definitely the less experienced person here who is in that position. So uh, good for Hiroshi Hamasaki uh, helping someone else instead of taking it all on himself. Naomi Nakayama hasn't... It's the only thing she's been overall director for. Uh, she's done an episode direction on a bunch of stuff. The first season of JoJo, uh, Hunter Hunter, MHA. She was also assistant director for Cash... Cash and Sins, which we'll watch at some point. And uh, for Denny's sake, she storyboarded and directed the opening of the second season of Kekai Sensen. Now, despite him being the assistant in this case, there's uh, Hamasaki has a lot more history. For once, we actually have somebody who started as a key animator. I don't believe it. I'll just list a few things he's done key animation for. Uh, Perfect Blue. The Trigun movie? That's what Badlands Rumble is, right? Yes, yes, it is. Yeah. From 2013. Ninja Scroll and uh, most notably for animation, Redline. If you look him up on uh, Sakagabora, I'm sure you'll be able to find some of his cuts. In terms of direction, the first thing he did was animation direction for uh, Goku Midnight Eye. <laughs> We're never going to be able to forget that, are we? No. Nope. That, that's just... Bird in a collective consciousness. And then on to full direction, he directed and probably animated uh, a short, a romantic short from 1992, which was part of a collection called I Monogatari. His first show he directed, and also his best, is Textnalize, which showed his proclivities off very early. He's very good at making um, worlds that feel alive, yet very dreary and miserable. And, uh, well, that, that's textilized. In particular, he does that with uh, washed-out color palettes and a lot of, fast, well, both fast and very slow editing. Unfortunately, since then, he's kind of gotten, uh, I think, a bit... He's been miscasting quotes on the shows he's done. Other stuff. 
Shigeru Death Frenzy, which looked like Angelotti garbage. He co-directed Highlander, The Search for Vengeance. That's on my list. <laughs> oh, is it? Oh, great. Yeah. He co-directed Blade and Soul, and for our sake, uh, he directed the first season of Terraformers. Yeah. Which, for what it's worth, <laughs> having looked at the manga, I actually think the anime is a slight improvement. <laughs> you shouldn't laugh. These are people's careers. Yeah. Well, he's directed some good things. He also directed the 2019 Blade of the Immortal, which was a much better use of his talents. And his most famous thing, though uh, I'm afraid the three of us have somewhat unpopular opinions about it, is he directed Steins Gate. Steins Gate's fine. It's a hard fight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Me and Ian are firmly in the robotics notice the superior show camp. I'm in the Steins Gate is the superior show, but it's still only fine camp. His direction is one of the better things about it. Although I have to say, it's nice that he's somewhat adapted himself for Orange, though, as I said before, he's assistant director on this. Yeah, when you said when you mentioned his style, like, I didn't see or feel any of that in Orange, it, which mostly completely gone, which makes me wonder how much what his influence in the show actually was, or whether he was just advising a newbie, mostly. He's, he's, I can definitely feel his influence. Some of the shot choices, the, the editing and some of the scenes in the first episode. And there were a few of the outside scenes where the color palette was more washed out, usually when the camera was further away from whatever it was looking at. Moving on to our series composer, that's the head writer equivalent. We have Yuko Kakihara, yet another person who's written a bunch of adaptations. Uh, she's written three Aikatsu spin-offs. Ian, have you seen any Aikatsu? I mean, I've seen like the original Aikatsu series, at least a chunk of it. Okay. I, I still understand. I don't understand how it keeps getting so much spin-offs. Like, I understand that the <laughs> games are are, pro- are profitable. But how does that translate into the shows being popular? I don't care. Uh, from what people said, they're well animated. Sometimes. I mean, the, the first season CG certainly wasn't. In terms of other stuff, uh, do you remember Heaven's Lost Property? Uh, I think it's episode two of Heaven's Lost Property. Oh, okay, okay. It's it's Angel Continent in the Sky. Yeah. Who also is the man behind, also from the same author as Plunderer from last season. Oh, dear. I can hear my heart bell. <laughs> I fucking know that song. It is. Ugh. In terms of video game adaptations, she wrote uh, the Persona 4 anime, which uh, I don't remember if people like that or not. And also eight episodes of a beautiful, a beautiful Joe adaptation that I didn't know existed. In terms of some more recent stuff, she wrote Gakko and Babysitters and the. Uh, I think it was popular, Cells at Work. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely quite popular. It's getting a second season. It shouldn't be that popular for how kind of average it is, but whatever. All right, and finally, on music, we have Hiroaki Tsutsumi, who's a uh, more recent composer, I guess, because uh, he's only worked on stuff in the last uh, 10 years or so, and most of it is stuff I don't care about, unfortunately. So very quickly, <laughs> the Hyperdimension Neptunia anime that I somehow didn't know existed, Monster Musume, Dr. Stone. The music composer hasn't really done much. Okay, so if we're done with production stuff, let's just talk a little bit about um, the show very quickly before I, I start giving episode summaries. When someone described this to me, they described it as a time travel show. I'm not sure that I agree. <laughs> um, 
it's definitely a communication from the future motif, but I'm not really sure that I consider it time travel in the traditional sense. I would consider it like an alternate timeline that has mm. communication from another one. And I really want to talk a lot about time travel because I love time travel very much, but we said we would do it in a different episode. Yeah, um, this was a, this is like a shoujo show. It, it was published in the the monthly version of Margaret, uh, Besatsu Margaret. The, like the, this is a monthly thing so the chapters were quite long and the thing we're going to see throughout this is that the chapters are going to correspond pretty much one-to-one with the anime episodes for once i'm not the one who's read the manga but ian did it's going to happen occasionally so moving on to episode one episode one uh, well i guess letter one all the episodes are called letter <laughs> we get a little bit of an introduction to the future version of the of the characters because they're converging on a lot to dig up a time capsule uh and to read left and the idea is that they're going to read letters that were buried in that time capsule when they were 16 years old skip ahead or rather skip back 10 years uh and our main character naho takamiya is late for school for first time ever in her life it seems and she picks up a letter on her way to school and she reads it there and it the letter tells her some of the things that's going to happen. She's late for school today. There's going to be a transfer student, uh, and he's going to sit next to her. We get a ta- we got a transfer student, Kakaru Naruse, who introduces himself and sits next to her. And she doesn't read any more of the letter now, although the, these letters are an important plot point. Instead, her and her friends just chat with uh, Kakaru, try and like make him feel welcome. Like, come on, hang out with us after school. Cue. Uh, the Benny Hill music. <laughs> and it's only afterwards at home that she reads more of the letter and she notices some more of the similarity between what happens. And uh, one of the things in the letter is that they were not supposed to walk home with Kakaru that day. Oh dear. And Kakaru is going to be absent the next day. And there's a few, and she reads a few more things from the letter. It says she regrets not joining in on a softball game at PE, which she ends up doing after getting peer pressured in a little bit she's injured a little bit uh and then like the sort of ending of p the p type is uh the p session has kakaru wrapping up and bandaging her leg and uh one of the things later on she realizes that this is where she was starting to fall for him the only other sort of thing to say is well like she kakaru is being pretty cool in pe she hits a home run in her game the class wins the football etc 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 and finally Having seen the effects of the letter, she now believes that the contents of the letter are real. So what do you do? You skip to the end, and it's revealed that Kakaru is going to die. And the letter is about improving Kakaru's life and trying to prevent this, essentially. As I, uh, like, as I said, this pretty much is like a perfect replica of the first chapter of the manga. Uh, so that's the, my first impression. But like, what did you guys think of it? I thought it was a fairly solid first episode. We introduce both timelines. We get the whole gimmick of it. There's a letter from the future that allows you to change the past. Though I'm not quite sure if I completely understand the mechanism. This is reaching a bit ahead, but I'm not sure where else to talk about it. Because I assume there's only a singular letter, and the letter itself changes based on her actions? Or is it a really long letter that for some reason she chooses to read bit by bit instead all at once? Her letter is quite long and detailed. Then I kind of, I think it's a bit weird that she chooses not to just read all at once because every time she's like, during the next episode, she always has to look, oh, here's what's happening today rather than just 
reading the entire letter and knowing here are the highlight here are the big things that are going to happen that I've got to look out for. We're we're we're, we're calling a letter. I mean, it's like a mini novel, right? There's like yeah, thirty pages or something to it. It's pretty intense, and she might forget a bunch if she reads all of it at once. Like, I mean, we saw some of the we saw some of the detail in the uh, PE, for instance. It described the exact like pitches that the uh, pitcher was doing, which is what allowed her modulo a lot of luck to get a home run. <laughs> uh, I also think it makes sense with her personality for her to read it the way she does. To be honest, fair enough. So, yeah, her personality. I think it's quite well established in in the episode as um... without them having to explicitly say it. <laughs> As the shy person who has a lot of regrets in the future, because the entire thing is about both saving Kakaru and changing, undoing her own regrets from the past, which is a fairly common theme in all of these I'm going to relive my high school life stories, because there's a lot of them. Once again, going back to the old anime trope that there's really only high school life and everything after that, it's only downhill. I don't really think this is that sort of story, but okay. It, it's not, but I'm saying there's a fairly common um, trend in all of these relive life manga, disregarding isekai and all that shit. But it's always going back to high school to change your past there, because that's the formative, most important part of, of your life. And your current life sucks because your high school life wasn't great. So in those various manga, <laughs> you go back to change your high school life. Yeah, it's very interesting because when we compare it to like Western shows, if you were to say what's like the best time of life to be like a Westerner, it's either uh, university slash college or immediately after you've finished that. Yes. Right? Mm. Like we, uh, we idolize like 24, 25 year olds. Yeah. You idolize the cast of friends. It's 20 somethings living in New York, hanging out in a coffee shop all day and having fun. There's certainly a Japanese meteor. It's high school, high school, high school. Mm. Other than that, uh, like the color work was great. The editing was good. The music was surprisingly enjoyable, though very country at times. The other characters, though, we haven't learned that much about them. We got solid glimpses at who they are. Azu is like the trendy, uh, fashionable one. Takako is like the cool, calm, collected one. Uh, Sua is sports guy. Kakaru. <laughs> Uh, there's more to him than just being sports guy. Definitely, but just saying in the first episode, like as the introduction to the character tropes a little bit from which you can then build on. Mm. I feel like he's um, established kind of as the sporty character. In other shows, he'd probably be called the Raiju. I don't know what that is. You don't? Huh, that's surprising. It's just kind of a popular person, the popular guy. Okay, thank you. Raiju is like a, a slang term that's used for popular people. Cool, good to know. To be honest, my first impression of him is that he's really friendly, not that he's a sporty person. I guess that comes in more in episode two when we get to the football. But yeah, he's the really friendly, popular guy that everybody likes in class, but nobody and nobody really has an issue with. Yeah. Kakaru, as I said personally to me, design-wise, he looks like the most generic high school boy you could think of that you could fit into any other shoujo show and swap him up with the protagonist and there wouldn't be an issue. And we don't really learn all that much, though he's he's quite friendly for a transfer student, like immediately willing to hang out with the others on their first on his first day in their class. Hmm. Sometimes, sometimes I wonder if it's not just like if you don't if it's when you read something like this and you look at some of the character designs, if you don't if they're actually putting it in there, or if you're just um, like imposing your own interpretations of all of them, because I feel like he's got like a sadness to him. Yeah, uh, and I'm, and I, it's not entirely clear if that's just meant to be there or if it's just that I know what's coming. Yes, 
I don't know. It's something about the way he's shot that always makes him like seem like he's got a wall up. Like he's kind of melancholic. I, I guess that why that's why everybody else is so surprised at the end when he laughs at their antics and they're all because yeah. they've all got like stunned expression at seeing him smiling. And I think I agree with you. What I was talking about is mostly his design, but yeah, the way he's framed, I think I definitely agree with you there. Another thing that I quite liked in this episode was um, the way they handled the dialogue and the fact that. A lot of people are continually talking over each other because that's the way real conversations happen. And definitely yeah. not in this podcast, but other real conversations. <laughs> and it's just nice seeing that in anime because usually we just got the classic media style of line, next person line, 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 instead of two conversations actually happening at once, dialogue overlapping with multiple layers of subtitles. That was another nice touch to make it seem like a more lived-in world. It's interesting because... I don't know if this is just come if this is just like audience expectation at this point because there's no technical reason that you couldn't do it uh, this more frequently, um, just in all forms of media. It's probably just ingrained in the way we tell stories from like earlier days of media. We've gotten so used to this being the status quo that it seems strange to us to do something like that. Like same same for narration. You were I think you mentioned that it's one of the things missing from the manga is her internal monologue. That's because in TV's me movies in 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 those medium we we just don't have internal narration. We have general narration of somebody telling a story, but we don't really have it. And in movies like Dune, where it's done, it's seen as a fairly strange thing that a lot of people didn't react to very well. I yeah, I say it's quite. I think it's more common than you've made it out to be. Certainly in anime it is. And there are some shows that kind of base a lot of their storytelling around that. Like I think I, I think it's just I I mean, I'm I, I was thinking that this was done as an intentional way to cut things out uh, of this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and future episodes, um because the there are twenty something episode uh, chapters in the manga, but only thirteen episodes in if this is going to be one chapter per episode, then you can't fit it in a kura. It has to be a two kura show. And mm-hmm. I don't know why they didn't. But One scene I liked is you already kind of pithily commented on the country music, but I, I really like that montage scene. Usually montages, uh, well, I don't like them. But uh, this one was good at getting across the like group of school friends having fun uh, vibe. I, I think one of the things you're, you're going to want, you're thinking of is the use of like, things taken from like the school sign that move yeah. around and follow our characters like the emergency exit running man one running man per running member of the cast and they're all grouped together and his swirls are on the screen yeah and um when they move out in one direction like one of the signs like the arrow comes out of it and i for, at first thought this was like an animation error but it, it definitely appears to be a conscious uh, conscious design. yes Okay, uh, so episode two slash chapter two, well, letter two. We start off with Naho continuing to read the letter. One of the things that can happen is that uh, Kaku is going to take a two-week absence from school. But one of the things she reads through the letter and learns is that Kakaru, like doesn't bring lunch to school. And that one of her regrets is that she never made it for him. She does so. We'll talk about it a bit later, but there's like a cute thing with her parents, how they act around this. It's always nice when an anime character is in a high school setting has two functioning and living parents. It is, but it's one thing to like make a make a make a lunch for your potential of interest, and it's another thing to actually give it to them. And so she kind of like she feels awkward and delays doing it. And it's only later 
when she is on a stroll with him in the park that first he reveals that his two-week absence is because of his mother's suicide uh, on that first day of class, which is the day he was hanging out with them and in which the letter says it's the one day they shouldn't ask him to hang with them. Part of her way of comforting Kakaru is to give him this lunch that she's made for him. Basically, this is one of the parts in the anime where she's like decides I'm going to make him happy, which sounds creepy when I phrase it that way, but... I'm going to become his mom. <laughs> oh, you just made it worse. I mean, she basically says, I'm going to wake you up, I'm going to make you bento every day, and if that's not a thing an anime character's mom does... Forward in the present, Naho and Sua now have a son and they've met with their friends, blah 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 blah, but that's not really an important part of the episode. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that was that was episode two. The not really a confession arc because we're only at the pre-confession bento stages. Yeah, I thought it was a fairly good episode. It uh, evolved, it moved on nicely from the first episode, giving us a little bit more about each character and moving now and Kakiru onwards a bit towards their obvious romance. Uh, they go to the park where we get hit with the absolute whammy that his mother killed herself on his first day in school, which is why he had to take a two-week absence, and we just kind of sit there in this awkwardness. Like, it's it's very well done in the anime. Like, yeah. the music completely cuts out. We just have the natural soundscape and him talking. Uh, it's treated very seriously, which is good. Though then, I was honestly surprised by how quickly they moved on from that to she gives him the bento he and he smiles. We honestly expected her to blame herself a little bit for, um, for her... His mother's death because the letter explicitly said not to invite him on that day and they did it anyway because she wasn't taking the letter seriously like it's not her fault in any way but i was pleasantly surprised that she didn't force any of the blame onto herself that they just kind of moved on from that conversation towards a more happier bit since mm. you mentioned it the, um like she hadn't read that far into the letter but also she wouldn't have been taking it seriously anyway. Like, she only read, like, the first few lines uh, at mm -hmm. the start of it. So, like I say, it was only afterwards that you're like, oh shit, this 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 has happened, and this is why. <laughs> but, yeah, she probably wouldn't have taken it seriously anyway. I liked the uh, ex the exploration of uh, Naho's, I mean, it's not explicitly stated, but it's very obvious she's got some kind of social anxiety. In particular, the, like, psyching herself up to give him the lunchbox, and then it doesn't work out. That stuff's good. Also, the best joke in all three episodes is when Sua <laughs> asks Hakiru to join the uh, the soccer team, and he just claps clasps his hand, and then we just do the SpongeBob three hours later joke. Except it's like seven minutes, but it was still quite funny. One of the interesting things uh, in this episode was like just the amount of like animals in it. Yes. Do we have, we have doves, turtles, uh, ducks? Some very dodgy CG pigeons, but that's okay. Oh, and some fish as well in her dad's aquarium. Yes, those are also not great, but whatever. I think you pointed out the water, didn't you? Uh, yeah, I, um, for me, when I saw the water, I was like, this is very impressionist. And this is a very unusual because we have complained a lot about water in these episodes. <laughs> I mean, we, they do, do do this a few times in this in this show where like there'll be like a tab running in the water is CG. It's, it's like a built-in effect at this point, and it just doesn't fit. <laughs> One day I will get over my obsession with water. <laughs> it will be the day when the integration is so seamless you no longer notice it. Like the water in Final Fantasy X is really good and that shit's 20 years old. 
Yeah, I like the Impressionist, uh, Walter. There's a bit of Impressionism in the backgrounds in general. Though we do have not CGI crowds, but CGI background characters that are a bit awkward yeah. at times. It's fine. There's so they're in so many animes. Like yeah, yeah. yeah. Besides, besides the, them little hanging out a little bit at the beginning of the episode, though this episode is mostly about now and Kakiri. The other three friends don't really factor into it all that much. So little that you erased one of them. Yeah, Ripsua. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? You, you said three instead of four. It's fine. Whoops. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's there are five actually. Like, <laughs> who's the fifth one? The glasses guy. Freya raised that one. What? No, there's only there's only four, not including Naho there's, and Kakeru. There's three guys and three women. So I guess I was getting confused by the way we were phrasing it. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, there are some cool bubbles near the end that they use in the scene uh, just after he tells about his mum, and some of them are popping, and it's all thematically relevant for people who are smarter than me. Like, I just want to talk about the parents since I did highlight sure. when when I, I did the thing. Like, normally at this point, like, the parents would be, like, very overbearing and be like, oh, you're making a bento. Who's the boyfriend? And I actually did get that feeling a little bit from the mom, but I felt like they played it a little bit cooler. And then the dad is just disappointed because, like, she's used his bento box to give it to uh, Kakaru. And he's just like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> All right. I think with that, we can move on to episode three. All right, letter three. <laughs> this is the rival episode, I guess. <laughs> uh, we have foreshadowed the rival in episode one, and I think also two, but I'm getting ahead of myself. We have more letter stuff. Naho continues to read ahead a little bit by letter. And one of the things that is coming up is the this idea that Kakaru is going to leave the football club, which is not what Sua said. <laughs> and so Naho is kind of at this point realizing that as she acts on the things that it says in this letter, it is in fact going to change the things that are happening. And then some of the events might not come to pass and so on. Uh, as opposed to the, um, what we call it, the Martin McFly approach, where the letter would change to, uh, based on what happened, uh, which I hate. One day we will do a, a time travel uh, discussion. Uh, but one of the things that is in the letter is this girl, Ueda Ryo, uh, who's interested in Kakaru. And it says he's going to confess. Yeah, She was highlighted briefly during episode two in a single shot that made it obvious to me that she was going to be relevant somehow, because why, why else linger on a character that's not been introduced? Yeah, it's the, oh, the camera's lingering on it. This person's important. She will confess her feelings, and that later they will start dating. And obviously, she doesn't want this. She wants Kakaru to herself. So class ends, they play rock, paper, scissors, and Kakaru loses and has to go get drink. And this is when Ueda makes, his, uh, makes her move. He doesn't give an answer like, let me think about it. Until after the break. Yeah, and so like she talks to Kakura about it. He's like, yeah, I, I kind of like it. She seems pretty cool. So one of the things that it says in the letter is that like you need to check in the, the case of the eraser you've lent to Kakaru because there'll be it's important. And there's a note and he's like, no, should I date Ueda? And so she writes out her response. Hell no. <laughs> um and like she puts it in the locker because I mean that's how you do it in an anime right it's kind of too late like by the time you get back to the classroom like she'll learn that Kakaru and Ueda are, are dating dun, dun, dun. and she's devastated I mean obviously she's devastated yeah so she goes home and commiserates for a little bit while drinking her orange juice shifting ahead a little bit back to the present I really hate that that's the present, because... Yeah, can we, can we really say it's back to the present shift? Wouldn't it say we flash forward to the future? 
because it's i mean it's their future but clearly this is when the this is when the this story is being yeah this is the problem with time travel shows flash we flash sideways to the alternative future timeline smash go (laughs) (laughs) so they're reading their letters um all of the friends except for kakiru but we should explain we should explain that they were unburying a time capsule that they'd left for themselves with letters to their young from their younger selves and they all like it's all like well I want to become a doctor, and I hope I'm married to so-and-so, you know? And Kakaru is like, he praises every one of his other friends, but it like literally says nothing about himself in that letter. And there's, I think, a, re- a realization amongst uh, some of the people that this is because maybe on some level he didn't believe he was going to make it to the future. This rubs up a, a bit with stuff that happens in all the way in Orange Mirai, but I'm not going to say anything about that. This is the sort of the impression that that people would be getting. From the way I interpreted this scene is they always assumed it was an accident, but now going by the content of this letter, they now assume he committed suicide like his mother did. And that's why they're crying. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's episode three. Episode three, once again, I, I really enjoyed it. Like I, I thought it was just as solid as the first three. We, we get some more uh, stuff about the time travel, such as now, as you said, realizing that the future is actually changing, which makes the letter is probably going to impact the effectiveness of her ability to predict future actions, because the more the future changes, the less accurate the letter is going to be. The whole Ueda thing uh, wasn't that surprising, that she wasn't going to have the courage to do that, because then the anime would have moved way too far ahead. But I was a bit confused, because at this point she'd already started taking the letter quite seriously, so why she didn't just immediately check the back of her eraser surprised me a little bit. Uh, well, she got uh, uh, just uh, called off to do something, didn't she? I think what Denny is suggesting is that, like, the night before, you would read up on the entire day's thing and, like, try and internalize that, and here's what I need to do, and blah, 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 blah. I remember when this show was coming out and there were all the comments complaining about why she didn't do that. Like, yeah, it's it's, it's hard to phrase, but she's got that kind of character where it's just like, well, I, I don't need to know all of it. I just need to know a little bit. Mm. I guess it's also, to a certain extent, like trying to keep a bit of the magic of like the future and stuff around. Certainly. Like, I don't think that she realizes like just how seriously she needs to take it until actually after today. Well, yes. after this episode. But even then, it's just like, I don't, she's not the kind of person who goes around and be like, well, I've memorized the contents for the week and here's everything I need to do. And it's, it's, it's a very sudden thing uh, for her, I, I feel like. And because... Even if like she knows that she likes Kakaru and that she is like knows these things extra things about him, it's still hard to be like, I, I need to jealously guard in case someone else will get him <laughs> because I've already got a thing that's gonna help me win him over anyway. <laughs> Though I'm not sure how serious Kakaru can possibly be about Ueda, judging by the fact that he first asks now whether he should date her in the first place. And it, it more feels like uh, one of those storylines where he just kind of said yes because he didn't want to refuse her and hurt her feelings, rather than genuine interest on his part. It's the interesting question of, is he asking because uh, he's interested in her, or is he asking because he confided in her and he wants to like get her opinion on it without like realizing her feelings? This is also where I felt the anime could have done a little bit of a better time, better time scale-wise, telling us how long he's been in this school, because... If I interpret this correctly, yeah. he was there for one day, he was absent for two weeks, then he came back, joined the football club, 
It said one week had passed, so he's been there for a total of one week or so. A little bit more. If you give me a little second, I could probably tell you how long he's been there. But this is one of those things where it is very easy to lose track of it if you don't, because like there are dates to all of these, because there's a diary. Like the date that she starts school is, uh, well, it's the start of April. It's uh, April sixth that it's Japan, right? Sorry, it, it was May second, uh, so it's been four weeks. So he's had like two weeks of being at school. Okay. Right. This episode also had one of the uh, best flashback sequences I've seen in anything, uh, where it's literally the normal sound of the classroom takes place. And she just sees the images in her head, and then we see them, which I think is a much uh, was a pretty cool way of doing it. Because uh, I don't know about you lot, but when I think of um, when I think back to things while other stuff is going on, it sometimes comes out as here are some images. You know, the other the sound of the environment is coming in anyway, so you've got two parallel trains of thought going, and it's annoying but you know whatever there's a whole interesting conversation about like how different people visualize things i don't imagine that way but i imagine flashbacks being like jd has as if weird fantasies just lean your head to the left and then fantasy well my, my association with flashbacks in media is and here's a clip <laughs> <laughs> well terraformers which one of the people from this show directed was all about flashbacks Oh, yeah. You need to know all about those sad backstories of Adolf, the electric, the German electric eel, before he died for his friends on Mars. For me, it's kind of like a shadow realm overlaid on the world, <laughs> where I don't have like color or like the things aren't there. They're just like it's like a, it's like I've got like an overlay of just like the outlines on top of other things that I see, and it's kind of weird. Yeah. I, I, Interesting. Like the, these things are very personal. For, for me, I'd say it's probably mostly mon I montage stuff. Because I don't remember like every individual bit, so I just remember all the important bits of a memory in kind of a montage style with the dialogue playing over the montage. At least the yeah. bits I remember. I get the sort of thing where I'll see like bits that I've remembered well. I'll like see them like a five second scene from something, but that'll be like I'll be able to see that and see the real world at the same time. Which it's kind of like what Ian said. I mean, it's not really much of a spoiler to say that he doesn't stick around with Rio. I think it's next episode slash next chapter that he ditches her uh, yes. because like he, precisely because he learns the letter by the letter and like he didn't seem to be very serious um anyway but i think this is a very common uh thing like we're, we're used to very much in the shoujo mold of oh well we have this really intense passionate love when i actually think a lot of the things that we people do particularly in high school it's just like do i go yeah all right yeah. i mean it depends on the person i mean that's kind of the way media have demonstrated it so it's kind of ingrained in, in a lot of cultural consciousness of love being this really intense and strong thing that brings everybody to tears and is like an emotional roller coaster normalize ace and demi sexuality <laughs> yes yes <laughs> on the other hand there are people like naho who generally won't be interested in uh, people and then when they do latch onto someone it gets very intense so yeah we've talked a lot about these three episodes is there anything that we think is important, particularly visually, that we haven't already talked about. I honestly didn't feel like there were any like strong exaggerated colors throughout the entire show. It was a fairly matte palette of colors. There was nothing really shiny or or like sparkling. Yeah. What we sometimes associate with shoujo. It was very um subdued, almost more of a sh not necessarily shonen color palette, but a no. joke <laughs> color palette. Where it's it's very realistic color-wise. I think Freya point. The only thing that might stand out a bit is Freya pointed out the lemon-colored sky, 
Oh, that's uh, okay. Sunset. But uh, other than that, I, th- I thought the call-out work was very solid. Like, there was no exaggeration like in other shows we talked about, such as um, Fujin Monogatari, where the backgrounds were very watercolory. It was all fairly realistic. It's uh, The color palette is just on the edge of getting to uh, some of Hamasaki's more uh, <laughs> desaturated uh, works. I want to take I want to take up something you said about the lemon colored sky because I think one of the questions people might have is why the hell is this show called Orange? Like, what's that got to do with anything, right? <laughs> and I think it's because of a specific description of the sky as being orange at a sunset when the gang are all together. Yeah, I mean, there was a line about the orange sky in the opening, and when when Kakaru buys drinks, the drink he does give now is orange juice, according to Wikipedia, at least. The, the specific comments you were talking about color palette. We also we don't have any like bubblegum colored hair. No. We don't have twin tails. We don't have no. uh, heterochromia. The characters are very much. I'm not going to sit and say entirely human like. We're not. We're not rotoscoping people's faces here. Um, but they've definitely decided to just say, well, people can have brown and black hair. They can wear brown. <laughs> uh, they're characters because they have to look visually distinct so that we can easily distinguish them in the manga but they've not done this by making them super ridiculous but more subtle things naho's eyes uh stick out from the rest of them azure has her earrings and her hair and her uh, ponytail yeah i I don't want to i would hesitate to call her a gyaru but she is definitely the most gyaru one has his uh, necklace and we haven't mentioned Saku at all yet, but he's the third guy member of the group and he has glasses. He's the comedy relief one, kind of. He's really not hugely important in the, <laughs> no. the, the manga. And actually, neither is Takako, uh, the, the black-haired woman. They're, they're just kind of there. I, I would even say Azu is mostly just there, although uh, she, like when she is there, she's, she's quite overbearing. I think another th- thing that, that not necessarily helps them distinguish from them from each other but is a strong color is the green of their school uniforms because it's fairly unique and it's it's very prevalent because they wear them a lot because it's school, it's a show set in school but it's it's a nice distinct color that stands out from the background um i'm going to mention just a few of the the boys here uh just very briefly naho is probably E- well, easily the most famous uh, member of the voice cast because this is Kanahanazawa. I, I don't know if this is offensive to say because, like, when you think of like the character she does, Nadeko in Monogatari, Mayuri in Steins Gate, Akane in Psychopaths, she can do. She has a wide range of performances, but they're all kind of anime character performances, <laughs> if you get what I'm saying. Yes. Whereas Naho really isn't in many ways. I guess she is. Uh, I guess just a shoujo character, but. I mean, you're right. They are generally anime performances. I don't think that makes them bad. And as far as anime performances go, to be fair, uh, I think hers are usually pretty good when she's not getting typecast. Which, to be fair, she hasn't really since around 2012. Yeah, like that, that's why that's why I picked those three roles because they're both all pretty famous, but they're all very different from one another. This isn't a uh, fuck. Who am I? Who, who am I? Who, who am I going to shoot over today? Aya Hirano. <laughs> Uh, for Denny's sake, um, she's also blackhead person whose name I should really remember in uh, Soriori. Soriori is a good show, and you should watch it. I'm only going to mention Suwa and um, Kakuru, I think. Hmm? Suwa is Saitama from One Punch Man. 
Oh, really? Makoto, Ma- Makoto Furukawa. Huh. This is like, I, I want to pick this one up because like, this guy is nothing like uh, Saitama. I just thought that was hilarious, just picturing <laughs> the bald, punchy guy. <laughs> I mean, I, I had some other things for, for him, like uh, the student council president in Kaguya-sama, because everyone's talk- around me seems to be talking about Kaguya-sama. So I think that's probably actually the one people would recognize him for. Because I don't want to say people, because he's because other than that, the, the rules I have for him are all like visual novel shows, like Girls Beyond the Wasteland. Actually, it's a shame because that we're not going to talk about Saku because that's Kazuyuki Oki. But if you don't know who Kazuyuki Oki is, then you don't know who Jonathan Joestar is. But I am going to say that he is also the second uh, Madarami in Genshiken, not the first one. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think the voice acting in this was generally pretty good. Uh, I, I feel like I say this quite often, so maybe it's not actually true anymore, but they didn't feel like anime performances. The, I mean, the performance that's actually sticking out for me is Azu, because, precisely because um, like the, kind of the character is, is a little bit overbearing when she talks. And I think it's like not necessarily the easiest thing to do to get that orally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, without it being annoying and, like, cloying, and I would have hated that. I think, Freya, when you talk about uh, non-anime performances, it feels it's more like these are TV voice, because this is this could easily have been a, a live-action, fairly serious drama. This didn't, this didn't need to be an anime. There's nothing about this that particularly needed to be animation, because anime voices often tend to be a little bit exaggerated and have very strong verbal tics, so they're easily recognizable. So when we just have people talking normally, that that kind of makes them seem like non-anime voices. Well, it's telling that it's got a live-action film before it got an anime. Mm. It's just interesting because these are all um, voice actors who work on that kind of thing, so it's obviously a conscious choice both on their part and probably on the sound director's part. So speaking of sound direction... So tell, tell us what you thought about the sound, because as usual, I find it very hard to pay attention while we're watching to it. I think me and Freya have already said that we both quite like the sound. I mentioned the scene in episode two where they talk about his mother's death, and we cut out all the the music. We just have the naturalistic sound that was very well done. And Freya mentioned the flashback where we just have the normal sound still occurring, the country music, and Freya mentioned the monsters as well. So there was a scene. There was a scene in episode three where she's carrying something, and then he takes it off her. Where they like timed the dialogue, like to be the pauses are in time with the pauses in the music. That was really cool. Mm-hmm. So I think I think we can all agree that the sound was pretty good. Um, what did you think about the openings and endings? Like I, I felt the opening was okay, if nothing special, but the ending was just not very interesting because it was just half a wall of uh, black with with the credits scrolling over it and the other half just shots of the city. Uh, So yeah, the ending is uh, the song Mirai by Kobukuro. This song is interesting because it was also the theme song for the live action film. It's fine, but it's not good. Yes. Like, I would rather have this than Western credits because we're so used to the just, okay, here's everyone who on the film in black or white text on yes. black background with a song playing over it and so when rush hour or something does something different we're like thank you christ well actually most modern blockbusters i think have adopted a new, uh, another method which is they have two different style of credits they have the i think this comes from marvel movies where they have the more heavily animated credits with images and pictures and uh, uh that was pre-marvel but yeah 
but that's really where it grew popular because I remember Avengers Age of Ultron where it's just like a giant statue of all the characters and the camera zooms around or I'm mostly thinking of TV and I guess mm, I never really heard of me before but, but but part of the reason we do this is so that TV shows you can have the announcer talk over the credits without people feeling like they've missed anything next on BBC One <laughs> as for the opening this is Yu Takahashi the song is called uh, Hikari no Hahen or Fragment of Light this is a little better. <laughs> like I, I don't, I don't think very highly of this. Song. Visually, quick summary: Vaseline on the lens to start, leaves bike jittering, and then it gets significantly less interesting because <laughs> uh, they, because we have classroom scenes. The leaves are still there, but it's just one person. They're standing. They're looking in various places. Group shot. Blah 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 blah. A bunch of people running. End on a focus shot of the diary. Look, hear me out on this, but for some reason, my first thought when watching this was I was comparing it to the Little Busters opening in my head, and I don't necessarily know why. Besides, this, I also think they've got a shot of the group like running on the slope next to the river. It doesn't look anything like this, though. I know, but that's why I don't know why I thought of it. I like a good running opening. This was not a good running opening. <laughs> Speaking of endings... Mm-hmm. So... Denny mentioned that there was going to be a seven, uh, seventh volume to the manga. With the true ending to this story. Man, do I hate true endings. <laughs> I hate them in everything. Like, there are some things that are kind of, but like, it's kind of like unforgivable in, 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 in a lot of media because it's like, in video games, they do it like, ah, you want the true ending. Well, you need to collect all the jigsaw pieces and then assemble it into a jigsaw. And after spending three extra hours playing this game for no reason, we'll let you know what we think should actually happen. Or in the case of Asura's Wrath, you can pay us five ninety nine. I forget how much a DLC costs, but you can pay us some money to play the final chapters and get the true ending. My opinion is that the ending you get without doing anything extra is the true ending. Well, I think I think games don't necessarily see it as the true ending, but they see it as the optimal ending, where every ending is equally valid, but if you want a better ending, you have to work harder for it. I'm thinking of the case of Witches 3, where you can get dozens of different endings, but if you wanted the ending that's generally considered the most optimal for most characters, you'd have to work quite hard on it. You'd have to have like a checklist of hitting certain points at certain time, you giving certain responses. play the game a million times. Yeah, or just have the walkthrough up, which is what any normal person is going to do. <laughs> any normal person. I could, <laughs> hope people can hear the air quotes I said around that. Uh, unless you're basing your game around doing some interesting story twist in you know, order to tell cough. Whatever ending you get just playing through the game as you would play it, that's as true an ending as any other. And in particular, to add on to that, is if your ending is not possible on your first playthrough, it should not be considered a true ending. Yes. I don't, I don't know how this is going to happen, but so I can't complain about it. Yet. <laughs> is it being but, marketed as a true ending or an epilogue? It specifically said true ending in the press release that I read. Okay. And it's going to take place after Mirai. So this is actually interesting because Mirai, the manga, is just like an explanation of the final ending uh, as we, uh, the present as we would see it. Sorry, I assume the true ending is just speculating and from knowing anything I know about manga is he's not going to die and she's going to be happy together with him. 
I don't think that's a spoiler to to assume. So I, I will I will explain to you how the manga ends in a but for Mirai, so Naho is with Suwa, which I guess is a spoiler. This whole thing is spoilery. Sorry, not sorry. I mean, if you've never seen a shoujo thing and known immediately what the thing is, not really thought of very much about the genre. But so like it's more an explanation of the things he did to uh like after the school thing that made them get together. Okay. And so it's an additional point of view, which I think is important and useful because they don't really explain enough about the present in this show. What I think is going to happen with the true ending is that it's just the epilogue from the point of view of the changed timeline in which they've done all the things they've done with Kakeru. Mm-hmm. So Naho is going to marry Kakeru, etc., etc. Uh, because, spoiler, at the end of the manga, they do save him from killing himself oh. in the way that they know he's going to do. And indeed, at the end of the anime, they save him. I'm so surprised. So the only thing I don't like is if the implication, because the thing I like about the way that this show is done is that the two worlds are happening and they're both valid and they're both true in a sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. By explicitly calling out one as true, it's saying like, well, actually, this is the real timeline. Whereas I think the, the fact that they... The, the people who are in the future are doing this for the people in the past, knowing they cannot change their lives, makes the story better. Yes. Yeah. There's an, an ability there. It's, we can't do anything for ourselves. We're in the future. Kakaru is dead. We're going to live our lives in memory in mem- we feel is appropriate. And it's just like, but hopefully, somewhere else, he lives and has a better life. Yeah. yeah. Also, also, it would be quite horrifying if it was the other one. It's like, well, I've got my baby and my loving husband here, but I'm going to essentially erase us from existence. Yes. Uh, to revive a guy I might I, I had a crush on and I liked in high school. That's literally a Star Trek episode that's like that. It's it's less of a um, true ending in the sense is we're going to decide that one timeline is the correct answer, and it's just you're going to get more, and the true ending is just this is I'm finally done with it. This is the true ending. There's going to be nothing else after this. I'm going to move on from this. Hmm. Yeah. So now on to the true ending of the podcast. <laughs> and we're, we're going to rate it. <laughs> okay, Danny, how many how many letters did you get from the future <laughs> about this show? I was very happy with this show. I mean, I think from, if you listen to the episode, we didn't really say anything negative about it at all. Besides maybe that, the timeline could have been a bit clearer, but that's maybe just me not properly paying attention at points. So I'm, I think I'm going to give this a four because it's very solid. Like I was, we were very happy with all of the things it did. Just because I can predict the way it's going to end doesn't mean it's a bad show. It just means I've read too much manga. So yeah, four. What about you, Ian? I'm saying it's tough, right? Because I have to be the most negative reviewer. <laughs> Do you want me to give it a four point <laughs> five so you can go down to a four? No. Uh, I, I actually think a four is fair uh, in this case. Did I like it better than Fujin Monogatari? I think I did. Four. Fair. I, d- I said something good. The only negative I have for this is that I'm not actually sure that the anime is providing anything that the manga doesn't. Mm-hmm. I think that people can read the manga. They'll be done with it much quicker. They will have the extra advantage that we've watched three episodes that have corresponded to three manga chapters, and as such, it has felt very good. I don't know how the man how they're going to deal with the fact that they've going to have to cut out half the chapters 
And I assume that some of this is going to come down to a lot of the later stuff in the timeline is going to get cut and that they're just going to take some of the earlier ones and like show how those change it more. But that's speculation on my part because we've only seen these three episodes, even if I have read the entire manga. How about you, Freya? How many letters from the future did you get? Well, speaking of someone who's seen the whole show but not read the manga, uh, I don't really remember it ever feeling rushed. Um, so I think I avoided that problem. It's it's funny, isn't it? We uh, we usually don't like when things are kind of one-to-one. But I haven't read the manga, so it's not a problem. I find myself surprised because I remember liking the show but not being wowed by it. But I actually quite really liked these first few episodes. Yeah, it's very grounded. It's good good directing. Ian's put a new angle on it, which uh, has made me like the story a bit more. So, four. Yeah, which makes this the second highest rated show on this podcast after uh, Ghost Hound. Yeah, and I think in, that's interesting because I think Ghost Hound is the only other place where we all agreed. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, we've, we've had some close ones, like Rosa Versailles, I guess. Mm-hmm. But like, this is, I think this is the only one where we well, all... Well, Fuji we were all we were all fairly positive on. Yeah, that's, that's true, that's true. Good job, Orange. <laughs> you, you did good. So Ian, as I don't have any trivia this week, and you seem to be fairly well read on this show, do you have any trivia for us? Okay, so this isn't about the show, this is about the ending. So I mentioned that these were by Yu Takahashi and uh, Kobukuro, mm-hmm. respectively, opening and ending. This is not the first time they have done the opening and ending to a show. This is true of Bakuman. Uh, where the opening that we hate for Bakuman, uh, <laughs> well, the only opening for Bakuman, um, Bluebird, uh, that's done by uh, Kuro. And Yu Takahashi did the second ending, which is um, Genjitsu to Yu Nano Kaibutsu to Genjitsu to Yu Nano Kaibutsu to Takau Monotachi. I realize, having said it, was I should have just said the English in the first place, which is those who fight the monster known as reality, which I think is the the more enjoyable ending. But it was nice to see the pair of them together. I don't think I would know, because like, it's, just, it's just a nice coincidence. With that, what will we be watching next week? Next week, we'll be continuing our trilogy of romance shorts. We went all the way back to Toki Make It Tonight. We went to the recent past of Orange. Now we're going back to the late 2000s with Skip Beat. We are the Anime Research Group, a weekly podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Barring occasional eight-week breaks. <laughs> Coming out every Thursday, more or less. If you would like to tell us what you thought of the episode or suggest something for future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at uh, research underscore anime or drop us an email at researchanime at gmail.com.